0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Chelsea Hilliard. Chelsea is a senior counsel in Foley's Dallas office with a practice focused on litigation, or as Chelsea describes it, she is a deal litigator. In this conversation, Chelsea reflects on growing up in Palos Verdes, California, earning her undergraduate degree from Southern Methodist University, as well as her JD from Southern's Dedman School of Law. Chelsea reflects on a path that essentially took her from California to Texas. And as you hear her talk, you'll learn that it was not at all on the radar or her plan to end up in Texas, but that is where she landed. She reflects on her passion for horses and how that got her there. You know, I really don't want to spoil the story, so I'm not going to say more, but her story is similar to many others on the path in the practice. It really epitomizes why it's so important that we reveal the journeys behind the bios. The things that you simply won't find on a law firm bio are what we dive into. Chelsea reflects on unlikely interests that caused her to learn about law school. She also talks about navigating a really difficult job market. And of course, because it's the path in the practice, I get her to talk a bit about her practice, but Truly, one of my favorite things about this episode is the wisdom that is sprinkled throughout. Chelsea gives fantastic advice on navigating difficult situations. She also touches on success as a summer associate. And just overall, you can hear how self-reflective she is, how much she has learned on her journey, and her willingness to share that with others. Finally, as we wind down our discussion, Chelsea reflects and provides great insight on the importance of being a sponge and asking questions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chelsea Hilliard. Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start how I always start, which is me asking you to give your professional introduction.
1: Hi, I'm Chelsea Hilliard. I'm a securities and deal litigator based in Dallas, Texas. I like to think of my practice as someone who Helps people solve problems when deals go bad, as I say. Another aspect of my practice is corporate risk management. And I feel like that, in a nutshell, is helping companies and businesses with their problem solving and getting ahead of disclosure obligations and any issues that are on the horizon.
0: Well, we're going to unpack all of that, but I like that you said deals that go bad because at first I was like, I know she's a litigator, but how does this really manifest? And you explained it for me. Before we get to your practice, though, we have to talk about the life before that and life leading up to practice. So let's start somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? So this
1: will surprise a lot of people who view me as a Dallas, Texas attorney. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, uh, in a little sleepy town called Palos Verdes, which is really not that sleepy. It's just sleepy comparatively when you think about living in Los Angeles um which is on the south bay or the south peninsula of los angeles
0: all right so give me a snapshot if i found little chelsea and palace veredice i don't know around late elementary school middle school what were your interests what was keeping you you busy i don't know What, what was life like
1: so i had two big loves of my childhood one horseback riding which i think a lot of people equate me with that equestrian or horsey girl (laughs) but the other was i was really into art since a young age i was just in love with anything that was artistic like painting or sculpting or drawing and i i was always doing some sort of art form so you could either find me horseback riding or doing art or maybe dancing i also i love to dance
0: All right. So you said a few things that I have to follow up on. So one, when you say horses, is that, are there competitions involved? Like what's the, or is it, I would casually ride horses sometimes. What's the extent of that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, and I know that on your podcast before you noticed that there's a trend of lawyers either being bookish or athletes. And it's something that I think I see a lot of in litigation in particular. There's so many litigators that are former athletes. And I I think there's that aspect of your identity, just being tied to it. But anyway, going back to your question about horses. Yes. um, I rode competitively and that's actually how I ended up in Texas.
0: You have to say more. How does that work? So you mean, so later on, I know we're going to jump around. So listeners, I'm sorry, but I can't just, I can't wait on that one. How did that lead to you getting, coming to Texas?
1: So it is kind of a funny story. If you knew me growing up, because I was I loved where I grew up I was very much a California girl you know third generation and but I love my passion like my identity was really tied up in equestrian and um, I rode Arabian horses so I was on the Arabian horse circuit it sounds so foreign now so I was planning to go to USC my parents went to USC and so it was like okay my plan was just I was plodding along and then at the last minute after I was enrolled and everything. I got a call from SMU and they let me know that they had, at the last minute, they had acquired funding to start a division one equestrian team, which was exciting. And they asked if I wanted to come and be part of that inaugural team. And at that point in my life, I I, I knew nothing about SMU. I knew no one in Dallas, but equestrian was with my my life in a way. So I seized this opportunity knowing no one and nothing about school really, but I uh, came out to Dallas and uh, I won't say how many years later, but a long time later, you know, many here we are. Many years later, here you are.
0: <laughs> many, many. That is so interesting. And then for listeners who aren't familiar, SMU is Southern Methodist University, but it, it's just really interesting to hear you talk about that because one of my favorite parts of this show is showing that a lot of us were not born knowing we wanted to be attorneys. And so I don't know, you know, what your plans were when you thought what life would be, you know, at this point, but it doesn't sound like at that point at least you thought law school was in the cards. And getting you to sort of fast forward that connection between yeah. horses and moving, <laughs> we automatically fast-forwarded through a lot of my questions, which is cause you know, my next question is like, all right, you go to high school, how do you decide? So for you, high school was I'm clearly going to USC. But up until that last moment, you got this phone call and everything changed.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think there was a podcast that I listened to uh, that really got at this the other day, which was talking about the mentality of of athletes. And, you know, when you lose that sport, you know, you really feel lost in a way. Identity. It's it's just tied to your identity. Yes. It's really hard, um, you know. People ask me why I don't ride anymore, and that's a whole different topic. But it's really related to the, your question of how I ended up wanting to be a lawyer. And you're right; I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I was, you know, in high school thinking, okay, I'm going to go SC and then I'm going to be a lawyer. My best friend from home, Nicole, she, she knew. We, I, I remember in ninth grade, she knew she wanted to be a, a patent litigator or you know, wow. IP litigator, and and she is, and she's fabulous. Does a great job with that. Me, I was like, well, I love horses and I love what I'm doing, but I knew that it wasn't forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the trigger for me with SMU and and the Division I equestrian team was it was an opportunity to not have to let that go at that point. Yeah.
0: You were able to extend it for many, a a few more years. That's really interesting. Okay. So then let's talk about that transition. You're now in a state, You hadn't really planned on being on. You didn't, you're coming from California. You don't really know anybody. You know, you're going to be able to ride as a part of their equestrian team. What was the transition to college like? Yeah, just say more about that. Brutal honesty,
1: it was really hard. There was absolutely the homesickness and, you know, all the things that you would expect, but it was a culture shock. And I don't think I've ever really gotten not that you get over something like that, but that was hard for me. And there's different aspects of that, but I really poured myself into the school. And the reason I credit so much to SMU, it's um, it was an amazing opportunity for me and an opportunity that I did not recognize at the time. And looking back, I do credit a lot to the university. And what I mean by that is, um, SMU was this place where if you wanted to be involved, if you wanted to, you know, make a difference, you could. I was like, just raise your hand. And so I got very involved.
0: Does that mean student, student government clubs? What, is, what does that mean? Sororities? What does it mean? All the things, actually. Yeah. You're like all of the, yes to all of those.
1: I laugh because when I got to law school, it felt like a vacation in, in a way. Interesting. I know. I was like, oh, my gosh, I actually feel like I have a social life now.
0: Yeah, I imagine a number of things dropped away. Although I do want to ask, so what was what was your major in undergrad?
1: So it started off as, you know, I didn't really know. I was like, oh, advertising, marketing, business, you know, all the things. If I'm passionate about something, I really throw myself into it. And I loved art. And so long story short, I ended up getting a BFA in art history.
0: Now I feel bad because I pulled I pulled on I pulled on the equestrian thread and not the art thread <laughs> when you mentioned it earlier.
1: I know. I feel like I left you a couple breadcrumbs, but and then surprising, you know, I mean surprisingly now I it's like you wouldn't see those threads.
0: What was the thought and I realize it's it's different now, you know, it's many years later and we're looking at what was at that point 18 19 20-year-old Chelsea. I get my BFA in art history and I will what was the hope post college, or just was that just what you were interested in?
1: You know, when I was thinking about getting ready for this podcast, I'm like, I have one of the most circuitous routes to law of anyone. Like, I don't think anybody could start from where I'm at and trace back, or even guess.
0: I do think there's some guests on the show who would challenge you who could go <laughs> go toe to toe for sure. But but yeah. go on because I want to I want to explore what what you thought you were going to focus on, and then what happened for you to say I'm going to go to law school.
1: Yeah, so. I did a, an honors program, uh, it was like a thesis program, um, the last year of my BFA for, for Art History, and my thesis just developed. Originally, I, it started out as a concept of the power of placement of art and how that impacts viewers and kind of your relationship with the art, and it developed because I started to notice some trends about timing when was the first million dollar, you know, when was the first work of art sold for a million dollars and how has that really changed people's perspective, you know, their understanding and their connection with art from work of cultural heritage to a commodity. And when I started to dig in, I there were some ties to the 1970 UNESCO agreement. And so long story short, I ended up spending a lot of time in the law library and, It was that connection between sort of these international trade agreements and these laws, and how that had, in a way, transformed the art world in the United States. So I know, very nerdy, but to me, it was fascinating. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but very interesting. And the only the only reason I have any insight is listening to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast, where for some reason he talks a bit about art in that context. But what I love is you're showing how this one interest, doing a deep dive there, led you to basically like the legal development and ramifications for that world. So that, like you said, there's some breadcrumbs, but those were the breadcrumbs, it sounds like, that you followed towards law school.
1: Yeah, I was really drawn by I was drawn. I, I, the whole thesis started off as I wanted to understand the interplay between and to understand why people's connection and understanding of art changes, and you know what are the exterior or excuse me the environmental factors that are causing that. And so I did not expect the legal route, but I think like any research project you know sometimes you, you just learn something that you weren't expecting and I spent a lot of time in the law library and loved it I I'm not gonna lie there probably was a little bit of me that was influenced by the movie Legally Blonde and so here I am yep I'm in the law library and I'm like ah I'm Elle Woods look at me
0: I'm from and I mean and I'm from California <laughs> and I'm in the law library yeah Well, I will say you're the first person on the podcast who's mentioned that movie. And we've mentioned a fair amount of movies and pop culture references. And you actually would think 80-something episodes in it would have come up earlier. So kudos to you on that. Maybe I'm just the first person that's admitted it. Maybe you are. But there's actually a lot of pop culture reference on the show. So I always appreciate that. But so you did go straight through, though, from undergrad to law school. So all this is transpiring. I'm assuming like your junior, senior year and you decide, hey, I'm going to apply to law school, take the LSAT. Is that how that worked?
1: It wasn't that I wanted to necessarily be a litigator or anything like that. I went to law school to be an art lawyer. So breadcrumbs back. I thought, okay, how can I keep this? Again, art history had become my identity at that point, And I, I get to these of life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to keep this alive. I'm, I love this. So how do I keep doing what I love?
0: Now, I know you currently are not an art lawyer, but (laughs) I do have to ask, what was the thought in terms of connecting those two? It was, I go to law school and my practice can focus on, I am not to say the intersection of art and law, but that's just a cop out. a A
1: little bit of the inverse. So when I was doing this research and I came across some publications that were written by um, basically these art in-house, I think they're in-house art lawyers for Sotheby's, and um, I thought, wait, this is interesting, okay, so there's people that that do this kind of work that I'm doing right now for a living, (laughs) and I mean the alternative, and unfortunately in the art world, there aren't that many paths that, unless you can go get a Ph.D. and you're there mm-hmm. and be, at a, be a curator. And as much as I wanted to stay in school, it wasn't you know, something that I fiscally was inclined to do. So I thought, all right, well, what can I do? And then I still was like, wow, wow, I can keep researching law and I art. can do
0: this. <laughs> Right. It's perfect. So you go to law school. How did you decide where to go? I mean, I know where you ended up, but the listeners don't know yet. Well, I applied. Uh, this one. In the end, it was very
1: similar to the schools that I looked at for undergrad. Uh, I applied to USC and SMU. And when I was really getting down to that next level of granularity, I was looking for art law programs. Was a, there were a couple notable programs and. So I applied to those schools. But as I got closer to the decision making point, um, I was just like over, it was like, it coincided with the end of SMU and my undergrad. And I you know, was reflecting on my time there and I could not get Past the the feeling of gratitude that I had for the school and the way that it had supported me and provided me so many opportunities, and SMU at the time had, and I think they still do, had an art law program, and um, so I was, you know, it was on my top list anyway in terms of did it have the curriculum, but at the end of the day, it was it was about that sense of community that I felt being undergrad. So
0: wanted to continue that. So you go to SMU, and earlier you had mentioned that because you were so active in undergrad, in some ways, law school felt like a little bit of a break, because I'm assuming some of those extracurriculars essentially dropped away. But overall, and I just I love asking, I have to ask lawyers this for the law students listing. I feel obligated to, but realizing you're over a decade out of law school, what was the transition like academically to law school for you? Was it something you easily took to, or did you find it to be a transition? I loved it. I don't
1: know if this if this will resonate with the listeners, but it's like when you feel like you have so much going on that you're just constantly shifting between things and you're really, really busy. And what I really enjoyed were those moments when I'm studying. And this was like more so in in law school, but in undergrad where I was like, okay, I can just focus all of my time on researching or or addressing this one thing, you know, and I'd be in in the library for hours. I loved that. Whereas so basically, when I got to law school, it was, okay, we're going to just do that all the time. And I was like, cool, this is great. I have like one big assignment. Uh, the assignment is to just study and attend classes and, um, you know, get to know your, your classmates. So as much as I loved being involved and I, I wouldn't change any, any of the activities or anything that I did in undergrad. Law school was a very different pace. It was intense. It was, um, it was hard. I mean, I think any, any
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I, I kind of like challenges. I need challenges in my life. So I really enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> well, and I hear a few things in what you're saying. Sometimes I've I've definitely heard the perspective of student athletes, and we haven't gotten into how demanding equestrian is. And I don't know that we actually have time to. But when you have a plate that's really full, same thing. I think same dynamic with people who were working for a number of years before law school, and you come to law school, and it feels like things have dropped away, either a job or either all of the additional you know practices and you know promises and engagements you have as a student athlete. I've heard a number of people on the show have said actually law school was. A welcome change. And yes, it was difficult. And yes, I had to study. So I do think it's just interesting to explore the different perspectives people bring to that. For you, I am hearing the seeds being planted of a litigator, though, with the singularity of purpose and really enjoying research. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how that materializes. How did you end up figuring out practice area. And I will preview for listeners. So you joined Foley as a lateral, I think about four years ago and spent the first seven or so years of your career practicing at different firms. And we'll talk, of course, a little bit about that. And of course you're joining Foley, but how did you just figure out your practice area? How did you find a job after law school? I'll cover all that stuff. What happens next basically? So I think the
1: overarching theme for my story is that I have been on a path that I haven't necessarily been the driver of. I've been dealt unfortunate cards in terms of timing uh, professionally in particular. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll go there in just a minute, but I've also been lucky in that a lot of times the things that I feel when things don't go the way i plan they ended up when i look at it now i'm I, they were such it was it was the right thing
0: it works out it does yeah
1: and that's a really hard thing i mean even now when i when i face adversity or you know something comes up and just blows up my plan entirely it's hard in the moment but i i do try and bring myself back to at this point i i know like i don't just believe. Like I know that sometimes the hardest things or the most unexpected events are the best.
0: That things can work out. And I want to pause on that for a moment, because I think some of the listeners will get for this will be either students doing their 1L summer, maybe they're heading into on-campus interviews, or maybe they're finishing up their 3L year, they're setting for the bar. And this is, I think, the hardest thing. And partly you develop that perspective just by living it. But I do think there's something to be said to law students or any student. You're going to have to trust a little bit that this is going to work out. You're going to have to also believe that some things that feel like they were not a part of the plan that are, you know, taking you sideways are going to lead to skills or people that are going to turn out to be really valuable. So, I just yeah, think that's it,
1: I think that's I mean, that's the truism of, of a growth mentality, uh, something that I, I, I try and lean into now. It doesn't make it any easier, though, when you have when what you want to have happen doesn't happen. And what right.
0: you're like, I need to be an art lawyer at Sotheby's. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> and then
1: I go to law school and uh, the art law professor takes a sabbatical for the two years that I was eligible for those classes. And, Ooh,
0: you know, and so then
1: okay. you pivot. But what I would say to, to the listeners of you know, anyone, I think, that is really wanting to be a lawyer it's going through law school that, you know, trying to go through the whole on-campus interviewing process, all the things. You get to that point by being, you know, top of your class and the rule follower and checking all the boxes. And you get to this interesting point. I, for me, it was in law school where you're like, OK, I've checked all the boxes. I've done all the things that they, you know, that life has told me I should do up until this point. How do I define success now? <laughs> What does that look like? And it's almost like you have this moment or at least I had felt like I had this epiphany of, oh, i it's now up to me to define what that is. That's scary. That is a really scary thing.
0: Or your plan was graduate from law school, get a job, <laughs> dot, 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 walk, on, walk off into the sunset, retire. And you're like, oh, wait, I actually have to live and figure out how I'm going to fill the dot, dot, dot part, which is, I really think some, some major wisdom that any student will repeatedly hear from somebody who's been you know working for a while because so achievement oriented, it ends up it may or may not be those achievements that propel you now for the next 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's the rare person who is propelled by that. Most people have to connect to something else.
1: Yeah. And it's hard to recognize. I, I think the athlete in me was so I needed that sense of winning, not winning, but that's not maybe the right way to say it, but that Achieve, achievement, achievement, accomplishment. And yeah, the, right. next, the
0: next goal, the next, right.
1: yes. And then you lose that. And by lose it, I mean, it just isn't part it of- changes. Right. It's not part of your curriculum. <laughs> Once you get beyond law school, and that's hard.
0: Yes. But now you do have to tell us yeah. because I love these more philosophical talks. I know we're going to do more. But how did you find that first job out of school? How did you end up being a litigator? This is a this is one of those
1: stories that, you know, has a happy ending but was not a happy story. So, I graduated from law school during the recession. I had a big law summer clerkship lined up after doing OCI for, this is for my second, uh, or my 2L summer and two weeks before it was supposed to start, I get a call that they're canceling, uh, program and good luck. No compensation, no letter of recommendation. Just sorry. Good luck. Get a job at the mall. Hope it works out. And, you know, I mean, I needed to, at that point, I was trying to find a way to make money, you know, to pay for 3L here and hit the pavement and was able to find two different jobs back to back in the summer. And one was a small practice. that had about four attorneys and the other was a, a law firm that uh, specialized in asbestos litigation. And they were they're were both wonderful and ended up actually working at the latter um, throughout the my 3L year. So, And that was great because that helped basically pay, helped me pay for my living expenses. So that was awesome. But it was brutal. It was here. I've gone through this gauntlet, got the thing that we all wanted to get, right? You know, I'm like, okay. Yep.
0: I checked all the boxes. And then
1: unexpected, you know, two weeks before and it, it wasn't. And I reached out to other firms that had given me offers and they were, you know, all in a you know, I think everybody at fall. that yeah. point was in a bind. And so then even worse, you <laughs> know, dun, 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 I had to go back for 3L OCI. And I can tell you that that year was probably the worst year in terms of attendance. I think there were two firms. <laughs> so when I went into those interviews and I knew there was one spot or two spots total. I told myself, you cannot lose, like, this is a doer, you're like, mm-hmm. you must do, <laughs> you must win. So it, it was really intense. And, you know, I don't, I don't wish that situation on anyone that was a
0: really it's a it's a hard time and so for so for listeners particularly the law students because the lawyers listening most of most of them are going to remember this time period um so i'm about three years ahead of you in terms of jd wise so i was graduating during the time when the economy was amazing and it's just like lucky the biggest summer classes (laughs) ever and oh did we say your base comp was x really it's y and we owe you back pay right but so this was all happening when i was i think a new second year and it was a very scary time in legal practice um you're not the first foley lawyer who have Talked about who graduated during this time, and I actually think it's important occasionally to talk about it so that people listening can understand there are cycles, whether it be to the legal economy, but also to hear, you know, what what people have had to do in order to just hustle, be scrappy, to end up where they were, and that things aren't always sort of just given to you. But I do, I will make a plug for um, Morgan Tillman's podcast, episode forty three. He was another person very impacted by by the recession, and he's also. Hilarious, not that Chelsea, not that you and I aren't hilarious. Right I now, am a, but also a very funny guy. <laughs> you are hysterical. But but no, I just think this is important to, to explore because this does happen. And one of the things of this show is illustrating that there's no prototypical lawyer in terms of the type of person, and there's no prototypical path to law. And there's also not necessarily or like at all a prototypical path to big law. So this is all me just saying I deeply appreciate you you sharing this because this is the reality of yeah. what it takes sometimes to find a job. And
1: I mean, they call it the lost year or the, the lost years. There's basically lost, two yep. classes. Yep. And there was a New York Times article a while back that did the, you know, kind of extrapolated the impact, financial impact it took on these two classes. And not surprisingly, our two classes, I can't remember, it's it's the class after mine, were disproportionately, basically, let me restate that, more people had left the legal practice for our two classes than any other classes. You know, people, it was really hard to find a job. And then when you got a job, it was hard to get work. And it was a very challenging time. And I don't, think, well, I, well, let me restate that again. I hope that law firms have learned a lesson about how deep the impact is. There used to be much larger classes, for example, for summer programs. And this is, I'm going to plug our summer program approach. I appreciate that Foley looks at the summer classes and says, we're only going to hire as many as we could higher as first-year associates, that it's not an up or out, and you're not worried if there was a recession or something that hit, whether the firm can afford to keep you.
0: I think we're very yep, conservative in that in that headcount, and firms did learn. And for those who aren't aware of what happened during this time period, summer classes, like you said, got really small, budgets got tighter. But then, like let's call it three years later, give or take, um, there was this dearth of associates at that level, particularly in corporate. I remember probably around but by, by the time we hit 2013, 2014, it was like, where was my mid-level corporate associate? You don't have any because remember, you didn't hire any <laughs> back, back in like 2010. Um, and since then, the, the summer class sizes have gotten larger. But I do think the big firms have learned from that and try to be more conservative in their hiring. And that's why, you know, tip to a law student trying to get a job we're actually hiring based on our needs at the firm. And not just based on, oh, you know, what practice do you think you want? Now, don't get me wrong. At a large firm, there's a lot of room to move around usually. But we actually are trying to sign you to where we think we have growth needs. And that's why it can be a little bit of a an art and not just a, a science. Actually, I don't know if it's an art or a science. But keep that in mind. We're go. actually hiring based on where we have. Right. We're hiring based on where we have needs and not just sort of like, well, do you want to be a litigator or corporate? But so, Chelsea, tell me more that you do find that job. you You did manage to you've now practiced for, you know, over the last decade. So close that gap a little bit for me. You you stayed with that firm through 3L year. You had to do 3L interviewing. And then what happened?
1: Did 3L interviewing. I think I mentioned, so there were only a couple firms. And so I went into those interviews and said, I have to get a job. Like I have to get one of these two jobs. And I did. And that was great. Um, I was with that firm for, it was a mid-sized Texas firm. Uh, I think I was there for about five years. And then I had an opportunity to go to trial boutique that really focused on, you know, kind of like high stakes litigation, true trial firm. And I jumped at that opportunity and I loved it. Got fantastic experience. And I was with that firm
0: until April of 2018 when I came over to Foley and Lardner. All right, and we're going to talk about Foley because we have to, given this is Foley's podcast. But I do want to ask: so that that offer you got out of law school was that for a litigation opportunity? Is that where becoming a litigator? And and fortunately, I think it aligned with who you are, just based on what you've told. Oh my gosh, <laughs> told me today. Yeah, a lot of people were like, Chelsea, you, you're really good at arguing, and I'm like,
1: really, I am. And they're like, yeah, no, and you're very intense. And I'm like, okay, so again, and, I just I was like, I was okay, even speaking of that.
0: <laughs> But the research and the writing, which is another thing that litigators do a lot of. And if we're going to move forward, but I would love if I could just get you to reflect a little bit on the early years. I don't know, that's the first three years or five years of practice. Just as you're learning to be a lawyer, how was that? And I say that because I find a lot of junior lawyers can be overwhelmed by the gap. They have to close in terms of skill. So having someone who survived and made it through reflect on that, I think is powerful. I have
1: survived, but I feel for our baby lawyers. Someone told me when I was a first year that you won't feel like you have any clue about what's going on or how the things all connect until you're at least a third year. And I think that's true, especially in litigation. It takes a while to really understand. I, I want to take a step back. I think if you have a really good mentor that involves you in the process, that explains the why, that shows you how to do things but also walks you through the process and how it fits into the bigger picture the bigger picture of litigation strategy why we do it this way as opposed to that and you know lets you make some mistakes so that you learn from those mistakes that it does speed up that process I think one of the hardest things besides getting used to you know working full-time and and not having, all the fun leisure time that you have in law school or all the fun time that you have to research. And yes, I said fun time to research. I still, to this day, if I get, I get excited when I have like that block of time to just work on a brief or just work on something. It is really challenging to feel like you're doing a good job when the learning, the learning curve is just so steep in those first few years. And it's hard not to beat yourself up. It's hard not to least for me develop some imposter syndrome around oh my gosh you go from being the best at everything right i'm not saying i was the best i'm just you know you're like i i know i'm doing a good job because i'm getting an a on this test and then you start working at a law firm and sometimes you get feedback sometimes you don't you don't feel like you have any idea about why you're doing it that way or what you're doing sometimes
0: and you yeah. don't even know if it's okay to ask the mentor yes. oh that's the thing you have to yes. but i know it can be daunting when you're like if i ask why i need to summarize this deposition or why did we write the complaint that way it's okay. And even though I think, you know, I know at Foley in particular, you know, the partners and senior counsel and senior associates are very open to that. There are certain environments where you're like, eh, are they gonna judge me? Um <laughs> so it can be so, so, so hard. And I also wanna make clear that in you sharing that and me, you know, confirming it, it's not to scare anyone, but I think to just affirm the fact that you're not going to be the only one if you find this challenging your first few years of practice. Yeah. I'm happy
1: to be vulnerable and, you know, put it out there because I don't think there were, I can at least say from my own personal experience, one of the hardest things, the reason I feel like the imposter syndrome was just, I had no idea that that's what was really going on, but it it was definitely going going on. was because I didn't know that other people were feeling the way that I was feeling. And I didn't have this kind of dialogue with anyone. And so I internalized and you can't do that because you find out many, many years later that no, that again, this is why I think it's so important. I don't know if I've said this on this podcast, but to talk about what this experience is like, especially with your summer class, with your first year class, it's such an amazing opportunity to bond with your colleagues and also then you realize, okay, it's not just me. And it's not just, it's also the fact that you might be great at one thing and your colleague might be great at something completely different. Resist the urge at all costs to compare yourself to that person because we all have different superpowers. We all have different strengths. And the sooner you can kind of Understand why do you like working on this project? Or Why do you like working with this person? Or what is it about this type of work or practice or area of law that, that you really, why is it that your work product is so much better when you're working on that type of matter or that part of the case?
0: That really speaks, I think, to... Ideally what you start doing is aligning things, right? So you work more on those sorts of things, like you said, where you know that kind of light you up, you're curious, you're even more diligent. But the but initially you're working on everything. Right. Cause you yeah. need some basic skills that have to be in place. And there are definitely people, I'll speak from my own experience because I was a litigator, like I'm better in court and on my feet than at least I was, than drafting. But my drafting needed to be solid. I couldn't right. just be like, sorry, I don't draft things. Oh <laughs> right? no, no. So nobody <laughs> Nobody was going to be like, oh, that's fine, Alexis. But, you know, later on, had I continued practicing, maybe I would have been looked to more as you know that dedicated trial lawyer, just like some people become look to more as a dedicated appellate lawyer. But at first, you need to learn and be able to do all of it. Also, what you said about getting to know your summer associates and other people, I hope our summers listen to this podcast, at least many of them. We have about 100 of them starting this, this yeah. week. And that really is the value of the summer. You want to get exposed to different practice areas, but also get to know your colleagues, get to know the junior associates, get to know everybody else. But the goal, I think, when you start is to have a few people... Chelsea, this is like basically what you just said, that you feel comfortable going to their office being like, I have no idea what's going on. How do you feel today? And they're like, oh my gosh, me too. But then you also have maybe someone two years ahead of you, three years ahead of you, who you could say, okay, but really what is a 30B6 notice? And then maybe ideally, you're also, if you're at Foley, you're gonna have some other mentors assigned and some even more senior mentors, you can ask other things, but you end up sort of calibrating your questions (laughs) to the seniority of the person at the firm. So I think that's really great insight. And Chelsea, we're going to drive more value in terms of practice pointers, but I do have to get you to talk about your practice. You said it earlier, I said it about 40 minutes ago, but after, you know, the decade plus practicing, you know, you come to Foley and I will ask you more about that in a moment as well. But tell us again, what is your practice?
1: So my practice is securities litigation and risk management advice. I think within the securities field. You know, I, I understand that's either a daunting term or it's a very broad term. I focus on private company work with VCs and PE groups um, and then on the risk management side, advising companies uh, for deal litigation, you know, when deals go bad, shareholder derivative lawsuits, things like that. But it does run the gamut, I, I find myself back up a second in terms of how I got to securities litigation, it was, this links to the the advice I was giving, which is once you start to understand why, you start to learn that you like a particular area of law generally because you're good at it, and you're usually good at it because you like it, right? They're kind of circular. And that's how I got to securities law was I kept finding myself, I was really drawn to these around a bunch of hedge fund manager cases and really liked how complex it was it and was like this 3d puzzle and um, it's really sophisticated legal work and I I really just kept going back to these deal litigation cases and so when it was at the point where I was like okay I can kind of pick a path that was the work that I really enjoyed and you know wanted more of so I laughed because I I think back to when I was in law school and I was like, okay, well, I can't do it, be an art lawyer. Well, I'll be a real estate transaction attorney. And then, you know, the recession hits and I'm like, well, okay, I will take whatever there is. You say I'm a litigator? Yes, I I can litigate. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't think I have necessarily all of the obvious litigator personality types that you assume that are think that a litigator would have, but again, I just think life works in a serious way sometimes. The things that I, I know drive me are problem solving, helping people. I mean, helping others is kind of just at its core, one of the things that drives me. Um, I, I stay in law because I, I love how challenging it is. And I love that we're problem solving for our clients. And that collaborative working through a problem is is sort of like everything to me. I'm like, I love that. So whether that plays out with our clients and helping them resolve a dispute or think about how we can get out ahead of potential disputes, that's kind of what I'm working on right now, what I really love, which is ESG disclosures and thinking about how we can help our companies get ahead of the current disclosure requirements and think bigger picture and... Um, you know,
0: all the... Well, I love the excitement you have because I can see Chelsea's face as she's she's talking, as as you talk about your practice. But I also love how you distilled it when we first got on. And, you know, it's maybe not only because we encourage our senior counsel to be able to deliver and explain their practice in that way, but you said when deals go wrong, you bring me in. And also, I imagine, so that deals don't go wrong, maybe you want to bring bring me in. And I think when it comes to litigation, maybe a lot of people appreciate you you bring the litigator in because, yeah, probably something maybe contract based or maybe not didn't work out the way that it should. But I do think some people can forget about the sort of follow on knock up stuff, knock on stuff after, say, a big acquisition or for a company that, you know, is regulated by the SEC, like what that could what that could mean and how it could impact you. So I don't know. I just I really appreciate how you explain that. And I'm going to not follow my urge, which is to ask you all kinds of detail about your practice because we've already talked for quite some time. And I have a couple other things I want to ask you about. But next, you know, we've talked about you You then came to Foley. So what has life been like at Foley for you the past four years? Like, what has differentiated Foley, I guess, in your experience? And how have we managed to keep you? This is the like brag about Foley. Ah, uh,
1: yes. So I, I like talking about my, why I came to Foley because I think it's also the answer to your question as well, because it's also why I stayed. When I was, my prior firm had decided to, as I call it, or not, I, I stole this from Gwen Paltrow, consciously uncouple. And I was thinking about different opportunities and what I wanted to do. It was like, okay, I'm now making my own decision, right? This is, it was kind of like another recession, but I was like, no, I'm going to lean into this and recognize this as an opportunity. <laughs> and one of my mentors at the time, Orrin Harrison he and I worked together, and uh, we talked about where where we might want to land. And he said, "Well, let's, you know, tell me what you're thinking." And so I said, "Okay, well, I've done this chart. Yes, anyone that knows me, I do charts." <laughs> and I dug in and I did the analysis, and you know, I knew to support the, our practice, we needed to be a, a firm of a certain size and have a certain you know type of work, and that kind of narrowed it down. And I said, "You know, there's three things that are really important to me that." are crucial for for me in terms of looking at a firm. One, the work, right? The, The high quality work. Two, the platform that can support that kind of work for our clients. And third, people. And not just people, but I truly appreciate that, I don't want to use the word family because that you spend so much time with your colleagues And I didn't want a firm that had, you know, like FaceTime requirement, that kind of thing. But I needed a place where, you know, you're with people that you respect, that you enjoy, that don't take themselves too seriously. And not, it's hard to find your tribe, right? (laughs) It's a fact.
0: But really, but human and really valuing People right. is what I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah. That's a much
1: better way of saying it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I have to say that way. I'm the director of diversity and inclusion. So you're talking my language, right? But 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 I think that's right. And this is where people who've listened to more than one show, their eyes might roll. And they might think that Alexis sends a script to the guests oh. to say people, but I assure you, I did not, not at all. <laughs> and
1: to push back on that, I I actually reframed your question and told my own story. Um but so, and you know, if we were in a deposition, you'd object to me. But It's the reason I've stayed and it's really hard to, I'm sure if if you're first year, you're second year, you know, you're in law school, I can tell you this all day long, but until you live it, I think it's hard to understand that people matter more, frankly, than a lot of the other bells and whistles. And I think there's a reason that Foley has so many boomerangs. You know, people that start at the firm, leave, and then they come back. I, I had never heard of that until I started at Foley, and then I was hearing about these boomerangs. I'm like, what?
0: Yeah, and it's a number of them. And sometimes the arc, it's like the person was here, I don't know, name the time. Yeah. 12 years, they left for six, and they came back, and they've been here for the last 10. I don't know. It. You're right. It does happen. It does happen a lot. And I think what's tough as a firm is – We don't necessarily want to, you know, go into every little detail about how we support people. But I think there are a lot of examples of we have a choice as an organization of what like what's the right thing to do to at like the structural organizational level, not even just the one on one because people here need and, you know, like to get to know each other. But as an organization, I do think Foley constantly tries to do right by the people that work here. And I think that's saying a lot because I just I don't think that's necessarily like
1: it's valued. The thing that impressed me about Foley, because I can't. I came to Foley in April of 2018, knowing that it was merging with Gardier, which I knew Gardier, the reputation, I knew the people, you know, sort of funny, but I ended up coming over as a, you know, into this group of senior counsel that were also my law school classmates. And there's five of us.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yep. And I knew a lot of folks at Gardier, which is now Foley. And the thing that struck me was, you know, learning about the merger and things like that. And they're like, well, our values are this. And, and then Guardian was like, our values are this. And they were so aligned. And I, <laughs> I do think that's part of the, the success of the merger between the two is that they are both legacy. Guardian was a very values-driven, focused-oriented group. And so is Foley. And that's what I appreciate. I mean, it permeates into different aspects of the practice And I really think that that's what brings people back. And that's certainly a big factor in terms of why I stay, why I'm here.
0: Well, and also our partners, it's a little different with the associates because associates are still sort of figuring out, you know, their their niche and a lot of things about their lives. But it's also why our partners don't tend to leave. Like we have very low partner attrition for a large law firm. And I pay attention to that because I'm the diversity person. And to change law firm demographics, you know, I'm kind of watching who's coming and going, (laughs) but I think it's a, it's actually a really positive thing and a testament to the firm. So I appreciate you reflecting that. And, you know, I apologize really to the lawsuit. if you're like, I don't know what the values and people, like I I, sure guys, but I would say, ask us more. Like when you hear this, this is why, if you want to send, you know, reach out to Chelsea or me or other Foley people, like this is stuff you can drill down on for more examples, but it is really hard in a podcast for us to succinctly explain what we mean, but hopefully you get a sense for it. And then Chelsea, as, we do start to wind down. My last substantive question for you—actually, it's two. You a two-parter? I only want to answer one. Is yes. One is there anything you've wanted to talk about that you haven't had a chance to? But then after that, it's what is your general advice? Knowing you've already given such great advice, what's your general advice to that law student or person early in their legal career? To be a sponge, and I—I'm
1: sure there are several listeners who are rolling their eyes right now. As a former summer coordinator. <laughs> I feel like I beat this in everyone's heads, but the reason I say be a sponge is because when you're a summer or you're your first, second year, you have an amazing opportunity in that you are in this mode where you can take the time to learn and develop your skill. It becomes harder and harder as of both time demands and you want to be as efficient as you can for your client. But there is this, you get a little bit more breadth to under you know to explore a project, to understand why you're doing something the way you're doing it, to ask those questions and ask the questions. Ask all the questions. I mean be intentional about how you do it and respectful of, you know, recognizing that people are very limited in terms of time and things like that. But no, ask the
0: questions. Ask, we want you yes. to ask the questions. I think that's exactly we right. We want
1: you to communicate. And what I meant by like being respectful of the time and things, you know, think about how you can communicate it in an efficient manner, you know, plan, write it down, think through, okay, if, if she has five minutes, these are the most important things that I want to get some information on or, you know, get her perspective hey, on. Hey,
0: bullets, Yeah, use bullets cool. in an email just so the person can read it. Cause if you send, oh, I'm amazing. sure if someone sends you 800 words in one paragraph, I, I can't even read this. I don't even know what you're yeah, saying to it's, me.
1: It's so many emails a day, you know, and be really intentional about what you put in a subject line.
0: (laughs) That extra, that extra pause. I really
1: love when people are like, it tells you exactly what's being asked of you or what's being conveyed to you in the subject line. It's like a tweet.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think for summer associates in particular, and this goes to to new associates as well, but that, like you said, be a sponge, ask questions, be curious. But as, as a summer associate, realize someone's gonna do that work if you don't and it's likely the person assigning it to you so they want you to get it right which is why they want you to ask questions because and also they're busy they may not give you the perfect download of what is needed but you asking that question is enough for Chelsea to go like oh my gosh yeah and actually look here here and here and you know we try to give assignments in a way that makes sense but please ask if you're confused please ask. in my
1: head there's this like perfect scenario of you know, like I have it envisioned, like how I would download a project to everyone, and how I would, you know, provide instruction along the process. But um, unfortunately, with litigation and also, you know, just life, more often than not, you know, you're in a crunch and you're like, okay, well, here's this and this, and I'm sorry, but I've got to run. And I just want, you know, everyone to know that if you're a summer associate or you're a baby attorney, you. know. Ask the questions, follow up, be persistent. Recognize that we want to help, and we we want you to understand the process and to learn and to grow, um, and that we really care about your growth. Um, and that if we seem short or we seem like we're not like available, it's it's just because we're juggling a lot of things. But at least in my case, I'm like, please, please just be persistent and know please that I really yeah. do care. I really care.
0: Well, and what I'm also hearing from you. And I've said this before on the show is have empathy for the people you're working with. If you can look at Chelsea with an empathetic perspective of, oh, she's super busy. Let me ask her because she may have forgotten to say versus Chelsea wanted me to read her mind and know exactly. Those are two different viewpoints, but the, the empathetic viewpoint will usually pay off quite well. If you can treat your assigning attorneys with great empathy, things usually go well. Chelsea, this has been fantastic. My final, final question for you is, and I already asked this, but I'll ask it formally: If people have comments or questions and want to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Of course. No, I,
1: I would love to help. I love helping our clients, our associates, anyone, my friends, my colleagues. So please reach out. If you have any questions, and if there's, uh, you know, any questions you have that I can't answer, I'd be happy to direct you to someone that hopefully can. But um, I think this is this is a great way to connect with, to really connect the dots between the younger generations and to share a little bit about what it's really like. And at least, well, at least from my perspective, I hope that I've shared a little bit of what it was like to, to go through the whole process, maybe not knowing exactly what you wanted to do and having things play out the way you wanted them. But I guess my kind of big takeaway is in the end, it all works out or it works out the way that it's supposed to.
0: I think that's a, I think that is a perfect takeaway. So please, please, please take Chelsea up on that offer and reach out to her. And Chelsea, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.